listening to the Dr. Claude Kirshner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirshner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. The reality is it's not about you. Leadership is not about you. Leadership is about understanding yourself enough so that you can understand and influence others. So again, of course, it's about you and it's about you becoming a better leader, but it's you becoming a better leader so that you can help others. It's about you becoming a better leader so that you can influence others. That That's really the goal is external, not internal when it comes to leadership. In order to lead somebody somewhere, there has to be a goal or a destination in mind. I would really like to lead you to a mountain so that we can climb up the mountain. We had that destination in mind. You said, yes, I'd like to climb this mountain. It's a good idea. If in my mind, I couldn't tell you how I was going to get there and what mountain we were going to climb and what we were going to do once we got to that mountain, Eventually, you're going to figure out that I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So the desired future state or the end goal and the vision of whatever it is that you're wanting to do, you have to believe that the leader can bring you there. So that's kind of fundamental. Like, where are you going is the first question that you can ask a leader or that you think about when you think about a leader. And okay, thank you for telling me where you're going. Now, I choose as a follower whether or not I want to follow you. And we're going to talk about followership too and how important that is. But what's so important is delineating that destination. And what we're going to call that really a vision. A leader has to have a vision of what the future looks like. And a leader also has to have an, what we're going to call a desired future state. I'm picturing that you are inspired and encouraged and also putting leadership traits into practice as a more effective leader. That's, I envision you and I see you being able to do that. If I articulated that to you and your choice now is, okay, do I, do I actually go or do I not go? It's an important choice. So I'm using it as an example to kind of frame the reality of where are we going to be? And then also from your perspective, do I want to be there is question number one. And question number two is, do I believe that this guy can get me there? So those are the two questions that every follower should be asking of their leaders. So therefore, as a leader, what should we be communicating to our followers? What does it mean to be a leader? The traits, behaviors, and relationships that leaders have to do. A leader cannot lead unless people follow them. So you can lead yourself, but unless you have people following you, you can't lead. Big deal is influence. Big deal is having followers. And then big deal is being able to have a desired future state together. So it involves influence, intention, influencing people. Okay, well, come this way. I mean, that's a barbaric way of influencing a person to walk in your direction. So in a more prudent way, leaders say, hey, I think you could be very good at utilizing, terrible example, but Microsoft Excel. I'd like to teach you more about Microsoft Excel. Would you like to sit down at this computer and learn with me? The person could very easily say, no, no desire to do that. But the leader has to try to entice them to come to do something. So there has to be influence, has to be intention, personal responsibility and integrity, 
change is a big deal, shared purpose, and followers. These are the components that we just talked about in that definition. So what is influence? Influence is a relationship among people, and it's not passive. So if I'm going to influence you, I can't just stand here. I have to do something. I have to actively say, let's go. You know, so, and this is a, it sounds simple, but a lot of times what happens is people think they're leading, but they're not actively leading. They're just happen to have some people following along with them. So let me try to use the example of what you might see in some of your social circles. You have a friend who's like extra boisterous and like outgoing and they don't really know where they're going, but what they're doing, they're just boisterous and outgoing and they have no real intention on leading people but people are for whatever reason gravitated towards them because they're boisterous and outgoing the question is is a person influencing and the answer is yes they're influencing people but they're doing it passively they're not actively influencing people so if a person notice hey you know a lot of people are gathered around me i seem to be gravitating people are, are coming towards me now what am i going to do with that like how am i going to harness that influence to take them somewhere so that's the kind of real caveat when it comes to influence is that it's active. It's not passive. So it's multidirectional, meaning I'm influencing you. And at the same time, you're influencing me. Like we're not just, this isn't just a one-way street. I want to know about what your goals, what your desires and what you want to do. And also it's non-coercive. So if I was going to lead somebody and I was going to ask them like the candy thing, the candy thing is a perfect example. That's coercive. Coercive means that I'm the boss, I'm in charge, you're going to do what I say, and if you don't do it, I'm going to fire you. That is the definition of coercive. And of course, reciprocal, it works both ways. You know, it's it's mutually beneficial. So let's talk about a follower now. Maybe it's debated, but I don't really debate it. But when you have the ability to follow people well, when you have the ability to be led Sometimes you are, you become a better leader because you understand the traits that are needed. If you ever heard the terminology, there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians, meaning everybody wants to be a leader, but nobody is allowing themselves to be led in multiple different situations. Even though I have this like leadership, you know, rah, 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 I default to follower because I'm not sure of what to do or where to go or what's happening. And so I defaulted and I ask questions, lead me, teach me how to do this. And I follow, which has now given me more confidence. So I need to listen. I need to follow in order to lead. Your skill set and your, your ability to do that eventually will make you a better leader. So leadership is shared among leaders and followers. Everyone should be fully engaged. Everyone should accept higher levels of responsibilities. What do you consider your own leadership strengths and weaknesses? Communication isn't just speaking. What What is communication as well? It's listening. It's listening and understanding and gathering information from as many different perspectives as possible before you communicate. In order to get better, if you want to, if you have a desire to, we have to acknowledge our weaknesses. We have to say, okay, well, I'm not so good at this. There's two ways that we can go. We can either say, all right, if I'm not good at it, I can delegate it and I don't need to be good at it. I don't have, I don't have to worry about it. And let me just stay in my strength zone. So let me just stay where I'm, where I'm good, which is perfectly fine. And a lot of people will say, you know, operate in your strengths. And I agree. Um, but if you don't have, if you don't have the basic skills of leadership, like if you say, let's just say that you maybe don't have integrity. Meaning you don't, you're not always good at doing what you say you're going to do. In my opinion, you can't just delegate that as a weakness. You have to actually get better at that. 
So in order to get better at that, we have to acknowledge, you know what, you know, I tell my wife sometimes that I'll take her out to dinner and, you know, I never actually take her out to dinner. So that's a problem. And I can't really delegate that. So I have to be aware of that problem. And as a leader, if I want to be a good leader, then I have to make sure I get better at that. Leadership theories. Over time, people have tried to study leadership the same way that we're studying leadership. They're like, okay, what is it that makes good leaders? And the first theory that they came up with is leadership was conceptualized as a single great man. Typically a man is what people would perceive as a leader. Put everything together and influenced others to follow along based on the strengths of that inherited person. That person had strengths like traits, qualities, and abilities. So these were, oh, wow, what a great man. He, he seems to have his act together and he seems to be really smart and he seems to be doing great things. Let's follow him. This is the great man theory of leadership. And then let's move down to now the trait theory. Picture of an ambitious, desirable future for the organization and team. So go from great man theory to now trait theory. Behavior theory, which is leaders' behavior towards followers correlated with leadership effectiveness or ineffectiveness. So how not only okay, this guy does some great stuff and he's super smart. Like, let's say Elon Musk is the great man theory. Okay, well, how does he behave towards the people that he's leading? How does he treat them? How does he act towards them? And how does he involve them in the mission? That's what matters the most in behavior theories. Contingency theories, again, unbelievable research in contingency theory. Contingency theory says, I obviously would be talking to you and acting and doing things differently if I was with you in person. I, I don't know. I would probably be writing something on the board or maybe speaking in a different tone or probably talking less passionately because I'm trying to keep you engaged because I don't have the verbal or I don't have the physical uh, presence. So it's contingent upon the circumstance. So your leader acts different depending on the circumstance. Leaders can analyze their situation and tailor their behavior to improve leadership effectiveness, also known as situational theories. Leadership cannot be understood in a vacuum. What does it mean in a vacuum? I've heard that phrase for 30 years of my life, and I was like 31 when I finally understood it. If you picture a vacuum, essentially what happens is the dirt gets sucked into a vacuum, and then it's like it can't get out. Like it's it's the dirt and inside the vacuum, and that's it. There's like no other variables. You know, it's a vacuum. You can't get out of it. So what it's saying is if it's in a vacuum, it means you haven't been exposed to anything. Like you've been guarded. You haven't. There's no other factors that are influencing you. So if you're like, oh, you were raised in a vacuum, it means you're sheltered. You were homeschooled and nobody ever spanked you. Like you were just, you're just so delicate. You know, you're raised in a vacuum. And this is saying that leadership cannot be understood in a vacuum, that there's a multitude of other things happening that in, influence my behavior as a leader, separate from various elements or a group organizational situation. So I, I think that contingency theory is one of the best. Derailment, a phenomenon in which the manager with an impressive track record reaches a certain level but goes off track and cannot advance because of a mismatch between job needs and personal skills and qualities where people get promoted to their level of incompetence. So what that means is you're only going to be as good as you suck. You're only going to get to where you're going to get to until you can't get to anywhere further because you're not good enough. So what that means is you have a bunch of people that are incompetent, meaning Okay, so if I, if I'm a frontline worker, I get promoted to a supervisor, then, and then I get really good at supervisor, get promoted to a manager, and then from a manager, I get promoted to an executive, and then I just stop at executive. What it means is, I'm too incompetent to move up to business owner, or I'm too incompetent to then move up to politician. It means I just sort of settle at like 
whatever stage I'm at. And here, here's, here's why. Uh, here's some of the reasons why people like get stuck. Performance problems, problems with relationships, difficulty uh, changing, difficulty building and leading a team, too narrow management experience. So these are all reasons why people just sort of get stuck. Uh, people skills, human skills, soft skills. This is something that we can get better at. And these are a lot of the reasons why Like you, you're really smart and you're going to go places because of your intelligence. What keeps most people back is not their intelligence. It's their ability to get along with other people. Like that's really what is the hardest thing about leadership. Give me something that you know that you're not good at. There was a point in time in your growth when you were a child going to school, you had no idea that you weren't good at math. Like you, you never took math before. You didn't think that you weren't good at it. So what that stage is, it's called unconscious incompetence. Like you, you don't know what you're not, what you don't know. So that's stage one of self-awareness and skill building increased leadership. So, all right, now I know you've moved up to the stage of conscious incompetence, meaning you know you're not good at math. Consciously, you're incompetent. Now you're at a stage, and let's, let's talk about uh, from a leadership perspective. At one day, I didn't know that I wasn't a good manager. And then I realized, hey, you know what? I'm not really a good manager. So I became consciously aware that I wasn't a good manager. So then I said, all right, well, if I'm going to be a good manager, I have to learn how to make decisions better. I have to I have to learn something. I have to read something. So now, great. I made it from stage one to stage two, where the worst place to be is unconsciously incompetent, like just sucking as a manager, not even knowing that you suck, thinking that you're good at it. So, okay, now I moved up to consciously incompetent. Okay, I'm aware I suck at management. So after that, I read books, I do a bunch of stuff, and I improve. And then I become consciously competent. You're like, you know what? I'm getting pretty good at this management stuff and making these decisions. That's awesome. This is where we are going to improve your human skills and your role-playing skills is you're going to become consciously aware of what you're not good at, which is a good thing because then you could say, okay, well, let me practice that. And then you're going to become consciously competent. Claude, you asked me some pretty awkward questions. And, you know, in the future, I'm going to ask you the awkward question again. You're going to know how to handle it. And then your friend is going to confront you with something and you're going to say, you know what? I want to have a conversation with you and you're going to sit down with them and you're going to consciously be aware that, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. I can handle these conversations well. And then eventually you're going to get so good being a leader at managing your relationships, at influencing people. You're going to be unconsciously aware that you're doing it. People are just going to be, it's just going to become natural to you. This is the self-awareness and skill building increased leadership competence. This is where we're hoping to get to. Personality is quite an interesting one. Personality is composed of five different traits. Extroversion, agreeableness, openness to experience, conscientiousness, and neuroticism, emotional stability. So let me just walk you through those real quick. Extroversion is the opposite of extroversion is introversion. The analogy that I use, if you wake up in the morning and you're an extrovert, you have an empty bag of coins. And as you go through your day and you talk to people and you send a text message and you get a phone call and somebody wishes you happy birthday, you're filling up your bag of coins because of the social exchange you're having with other people. You tend to get energy from others, especially large amounts of others in a multitude of different ways. So that's extroverted. So you go to bed at night with a full bag of coins, meaning you're, you're filled up because of all this interaction you've had with people throughout the day. That's an extrovert. An introvert wakes up in the morning with a full bag of coins. So instead of an empty bag in the morning like an extrovert, you have a full bag. And 
and the introvert goes throughout the day. And as they go throughout the day, every time they give a text message, they're giving a coin. Every time they make a phone call, they're giving a coin. Every time they inter- interact with people that may not be, you know, that good for them, they're giving coins, giving coins. And coins. So at the end of the day, an introvert's exhausted. They're tired. They're like, oh my God, man, I talked to like 20 people, 30 people today and they're tired. So that's what you would, the propensity to be more introverted would be waking up with a, a full bag and going to bed with an empty bag. The propensity to be more extroverted would be waking up with a empty bag and going to, going to bed with a full bag. So that's a little bit of an analogy for you. Obviously it's a scale. It's not one or the other. A lot of people are like, Oh, well, I'm introvert. Okay. Well, how introverted are you? It's not just, oh, I'm introverted. Well, no, it's like, you know, some people are really introverted. So, so it's a scale. And so I fall like right around the middle of the scale. Like sometimes I'm one or the other, whatever. I'm not truly extroverted and I'm not truly introverted, but, um, I just know that because I'm super self aware. Uh, so agreeableness, agreeableness is an interesting one. Even if you didn't agree, like if you didn't know that was right, if I said, you know, elephants would make a good pet and you say, yeah, yeah, they'd make a good pet. And, and you just sort of were that person that was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would make you agreeable. And this is not a bad thing for a lot of people. If you want to make friends, being agreeable is a good thing because people want to hang out with other people that sort of agree with them. But agreeable could be a bad thing too. And I am personally not agreeable. I tend to challenge people. I like conflict. I enjoy understanding, well, why would an elephant be a good pet? You know, tell me more. I'm not just going to say, yeah, for sure. I'm going to say, well, you know what? I, I don't know if I agree with that. This, it's, it's a good and a bad thing to be agreeable. And it's a scale. It's like, how agreeable are you versus how disagreeable are you? And I'm, I'm sure if you sat around the Thanksgiving dinner table last night, you sensed some of your relatives are disagreeing. They're just, sort of annoying in a sense. Why are you negative? Or they may come off as negative. They're really not. They, they're just might be just disagreeable. So that's just an interesting uh, thing to talk about. So openness to experience. Entrepreneurship was a big, is a big openness to experience personality type. These are people that are open to doing new things. These are people that are open to new ideas. These are people that are creative. Um, so that's openness to experience. Again, it's a scale. Like how open are you? How not open are you? I'm not sure if I'm open to that. That sounds pretty adventurous. Where some p- people, and again, I'm just using an example, will be like, oh man, you bought me a ticket? You mean I don't have to buy a ticket? I get, I'm in. Like, what time does my flight leave? Like, they're just open to it. So that's, that's openness to experience. Conscientiousness is, and I, this is one of my favorite ones. I look at it as like a maitre d in a restaurant. If you think about what a maitre d is, there are people like welcomes you, welcome sir to the restaurant. How may I assist you? You know, they may, the waitress might say, do you like your steak? Yes, I like my steak. Great. Oh, thank you so much. And they have their towel and they are presenting themselves in a conscientious way. Their behaviors and their mannerisms are structured and in order. That's conscientiousness. It tends to be something that a lot of time management at a high level are conscientious. They, they do things the way that they're supposed to be done. They follow the rules. They're ensuring that things are done right. That's conscientious versus, I mean, again, it might sound like, oh, we should all be conscientious, but no, no. It's, if everybody just did the, the same thing that everybody else did and if everybody just did it right and, and nobody tried to do things differently and didn't have much personality in the way that they, they served, a unique experience could be with a waiter that's maybe not conscientious. Maybe they 
they cursed by accident at the table. Oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I've had a bad day. And it's funny. And then people laugh and they, they, they conversate because this person is a little bit ridiculous, you know? <laughs> so that's, that's conscientious. And then neuroticism, if I called you, I say, hey, you're neurotic. What would you say? What does it sound like if I called you neurotic? It sounds like I'm calling you crazy. In a sense, I kind of am. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of insulting to be called neurotic. But for the people that understand what neuroticism is, it's not always a bad thing. So think about Elon Musk. Think about Donald Trump. These are two neurotic individuals. And neurotic is sort of self-focused, a little bit ego-driven, kind of falls in love with their own creation, and also has uh, a little bit of like natural anxiety about them. Not really a calm person. These are people that are like, gotta go. Like, all right, I don't really care what you think about me, but I, I'm working on something and it's really important and you know, I'm stressed about it, so I gotta go. That's a neurotic individual. And it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes people that have higher neuroticism are that tend to create things that are absolutely amazing. They tend to drive things forward. They tend to, yeah, they're a little bit self-focused, but the reality is they're self-focused for a good purpose. And then of course, there's the opposite. There's people who are arrogant rude, uh, curt, you know, they use their intellect to demean people and they're neurotic in a bad way. So there we go. We have extroversion, agreeableness, openness to experience, conscientiousness, and neuroticism as the five components of personality. So you got IQ, you got EQ, and you got personality. This is individual behavior. This is why people do what they do because they have a different EQ, they have a different IQ and a different personality. All of these things work together to, to create behavior. Which, what's, what I'm witnessing in you right now is a mixture of all the all these things put together. Emotional intelligence is very interesting. So uh, emotional intelligence is similar to IQ in that it's sort of a, a general gist of a bunch of different skills kind of bundled into one. And what is so phenomenal about emotional intelligence is it can be learned and it can be practiced. And it's one of the most important skills that we're going to develop and one of the reasons why emotional intelligence is so important. So let's, let's take it back for a second. It turned out that IQ, which is somewhat stagnant at birth, meaning it's a trait that is somewhat static and you can get smarter and you can recall things better and you can uh, practice certain kind of IQ increasing tasks. But the reality is it's not going to grow exponentially. It's not going to change that much. And no matter what you do, because it's genetic. And we thought a while ago, that successful people obviously had high IQs. So they did a lot of research on looking in to see if these successful people did have high IQs. And it turned out that it was a mixed bag. There were some people who had high IQs that were successful, but there were a large amount of people that had either normal or not high IQs that were very successful as well. So they said, okay, well, it must not be IQ that helps people be successful. And there's a guy named Daniel Goleman who started a quote from him real quick. He's one of the guys that did the original research on EQ, which is emotional intelligence, and how it's almost a direct correlation between someone's emotional intelligence and their ability to be successful in their domain, especially when it comes to leadership. So he says, the interest in emotional intelligence in the workplace stems from the widespread recognition that these abilities, self-awareness, self-management, Empathy and social skill separate the most successful workers and leaders from the average. This is especially true in roles like professions and higher level executives, 
where everyone is about as smart as everyone else and how people manage themselves and their relationships gives the best an edge. The ones that make it to the best of the best are the ones that practice, that they have an edge. There's a maybe a hard work edge to it. Maybe there's a uh, competitive nature edge to it. Whatever it is, it's, it's, that, it's that X factor. So in the workplace and in professions, so what the heck is IQ and what the heck is emotion? And I am going to answer some of these questions. Okay, so I went to a therapist and I was in therapy for about a year. And one of the reasons why is because I had my first child out of wedlock. So it was a difficult time in my life. I was about 30 years old. I was dating my girlfriend at the time and she got pregnant and we had a baby. And my amazing, beautiful, uh, almost nine-year-old daughter is just incredible. But that time in my life was very difficult. We, we didn't end up getting married. But the point is that it was a challenge for me and I was, was suffering from a lot of emotional turmoil. And I went to see this counselor and I would go into the counselor's office and we'd have, you know, our weekly conversation. And I sat down. And when I sat down the first time, I was like, she's like, well, tell me what's going on. Like, I'm like, oh my God, you know, my this and that and my girlfriend and she's pregnant and my dad doesn't, I'm very happy about it. And, you know, work is really stressful and I don't know what to do. And I haven't been going to the gym and da, 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 da. And she goes, okay. All right. Thanks for sharing that. It was a very emotional kind of share that I gave her. And then she gave me this chart and the chart had like these 20 different faces on it. And I looked at her, I'm like, what the heck is this? She's like, each of the faces had an emotion to it. And she goes, well, tell me like, what, what emotion are you experiencing? I'm like, Oh, (laughs) I said, wow. Um, you know, I'm a little anxious and I'm a little angry. And so I started really dissecting and pinpointing how I felt in the moment. The reality is every one of these emotions on this chart are natural emotions that humans experience on a regular basis. And the awareness of the emotion is really category number one. Emotional intelligence is the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions. Huge. And handle interpersonal relationships, be able to respond in a way that gives the other person dignity and the benefit of the doubt without dumping gas on their flame, like not absorbing their emotions and also honoring their emotions at the same time, which can be difficult because sometimes emotions can be directed at people uh, in a malice kind of way. And like they're trying to be trying to, they have bad intent, which isn't good. So emotions are good. Emotions are actually really good. You've got to motivate the elephant, which means tapping into emotion. To me, what it means is that emotion is needed. Emotion is important. And emotion is like a two-ton elephant. And if emotion is not cooperating, it's very difficult to get anywhere. So the essence of emotional intelligence, and we're talking about leadership, is being able to harness and leverage emotion for good. Make that elephant work for you. Not only your own elephant, but also the elephant of emotion for the people around you. One of the reasons why emotion is even in our brain to begin with. And if you think about if if a snake was on the floor right now, if you turn to your left and you saw a snake, oh my God, what would you do? Like, what would your body do if you saw that snake? Yeah, jump. Like you would almost, the moment your eye and your brain registered and it happened so quick, you would start moving away from the snake. What that is, it's it's a amygdala response of a survival mechanism within us. And typically it's a response where we freeze, like we don't know what to do. We fight, like throw something quickly at the snake 
or we've, we've run away. So these are evolutionary things that have kept us alive for years because the, obviously the saber-toothed tiger, you're going to have to, emotion is going to have to kick in. If you think about when you hear about a mom lifting up a car because the baby's underneath the car, this is a response of emotion. And it, it, what it does is it shuts down, the brain shuts down the hunger glands and the certain motor skills. It shuts down everything that it doesn't need in that moment to not survive, meaning everything quiets except the survival instinct. In those moments, our bodies and our brains are capable of doing some amazing things and they're capable of doing some wretched things. So the, the purpose of me explaining that is now we don't have snakes attacking us. You know, there's not a lot of snakes around and there's certainly no saber-toothed tigers. And most of our days, our stresses, our triggers, like the saber-toothed tigers and the snakes, are different things like traffic and committing a crime and having too many distractions or getting into a fight with our significant other or maybe there's a health issue. I mean, you see this with babies. It's these. This is the world we live in. So why then do we still respond emotionally to things that aren't going to kill us, aren't going to hurt us? Our, our stresses are different. So let me just briefly explain this paradigm of emotional intelligence. The The one and two are really important. So the one and the two are about you. So if it's about, let's say me for a second, am I aware of my thoughts, physical sensations right now? Do I have an idea when I looked at that chart that that psychologist gave me and I said, oh, I'm feeling angry, feeling sad. Am I, am I aware of that? Do I have cognitive awareness? Meaning is my brain saying, oh, I know what that is. Or am I just allowing that to captivate me? So having self-awareness is one of the most important leadership skills and traits ever. It is so important to be self-aware, not only self-aware of my emotions, but how am I using these emotions? I have to be self-aware of my strengths. I have to be self-aware of what I'm allowing to be present in my emotional state and then labeling my emotions. So very clearly similar to what that psychologist did. Am I aware of what's going on in my body right now? Like right now, I'm passionate. I'm excited because I love this subject. I'm so happy to be talking about leadership. And the other reason why I'm passionate excited is because it's freezing cold in this room right now and I'm cold. So I, I feel energized. And the question is like, am I aware of that? Of course I'm aware of that. I just explained it. But am I consciously aware of it? So anyways, that's self-awareness. And we self-awareness brings us into something that's profound. It's, it's one of the most important connections in this entire paradigm. If I'm aware of it, then how am I managing my emotions? Am I choosing how to respond to my emotions? Am I thinking before acting? Am I balancing my emotions and logic and decision making? So, okay, great. I'm feeling angry. Am I suppressing that anger in a healthy way or am I lashing out at people? Am I being disrespectful? I mean, that's not good. So let me give you an example of this. I was leaving for uh, a class the other day. I was teaching a business class. And before I left, I had my shirt on, my nice polo, my, my shorts. I'm um, sorry, my long sleeve pant, my long pants, my dress shoes. I had, I was dressed nice and I was headed out the door and my dog, who I love dearly, and she does this every once in a while because she is out on the patio and she's like, eats things she's not supposed to eat. And she threw up on the kitchen floor. And I'm like, what the heck? It has dogs. Every once in a while, dogs make a mess. And it, it, I was ready to leave. I was a little late and I was fresh. I just got a shower, clean clothes. So I'm like, oh, God, I have to take a paper towels. I have to wet the paper towel. I got to get down. I got to clean up this throw up. And as I'm cleaning up the throw up, a sensation came upon me. I said, you know what? 
<laughs> I want to punch my dog. I'm so angry at my dog. I want to smack my dog, but I didn't. This is the connection. I was very aware that that in my in my head for three seconds, I was like, I am angry. I want to punch this dog. But there's a big difference between me actually punching the dog and me regulating my emotions. So I say, hey, you know what? Of course I'm angry and I want to punch, but I'm not going to act on that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to bring this up and I'm not going to do anything about it. So that's a huge connection. It's a silly example, but can you, can you understand why that's important for a leader to have that self-awareness and self-management? Have you ever been around people who were not able to control their temper? How would you, would you lead, would you follow them as leaders if you witnessed that a bunch of times? You'll see that certain leaders, they lose their temper. And for whatever reason, people still follow them. And the question in their mind is, are they really, are they choosing to follow them or do they have to follow them? So uh, we won't get too much into losing the temper thing, but it's very important to choose how you respond to your emotions, thinking before acting and balancing emotions and logic and decision making. So that's a big deal. Knowing that I'm not just making this decision based on my emotion, I'm making a decision based on logic and emotion. And this one is social awareness. Social awareness is, and it tends to be that women are actually better leaders than men. And we'll break that apart a little bit. But what's one of the core reasons why is women tend to be more emotionally intelligent than men. And, and I believe this is not scientific fact, but from what I know as a, as a scholar and as a researcher is that how we're designed uh, from an evolutionary perspective as well, and certainly from a social perspective, is that women tend to, I'll give you this example. If I'm angry and I feel emotional, not angry, let's just say that I'm stressed out, anxious. And one of the things that I like to do is work out. I'll go do like 50 push-ups, you know, oh, you know. Right after I'm done doing 50 push-ups, I feel pretty good. Like I'm, I'm okay. But I need to get that anger out in a physical way. And so sometimes like go for a run or jump up and down or I'll punch a pillow, whatever that looks like. From a female perspective, shopping, how about calling your mom and like having a conversation about it? What tends to happen, which is a more sophisticated, mature way of handling one's emotions is to express it in a healthy way to the people around us. Like, hey, listen, I'm feeling upset. I'm a little anxious about what's, what's going to happen. And I want to talk about it. That is a healthy thing to do. And also a lot of times what what women are good at, or I should say women, but people with high emotional intelligence and social awareness are good at is perceiving that other people are going through something or that something is happening with them. So if I was downtrodden tonight or not as energized, or maybe I had my foot up and I didn't want, didn't want to share stories with you, and I was, it would probably dawn on you, you know what, something, something's going on with Claude tonight. Whereas people that are low on emotional, emotional intelligence, social awareness component, I just like, oh, you know, whatever. I'm just thinking about myself and I'm just, you know, and I don't really care what's happening in Claude's world and nor do I perceive anything that's, that's awkward. Social awareness, which is the step number three, being self-aware, being, being able to manage oneself. And then once you're self-aware and managing other people, you say, okay, what's going on? How's she doing? You know, what, what can I do to help her? Awareness of emotional signs in inferring emotions from verbal and nonverbal signs in others, language, tone, posture, gestures, facial expressions, understanding them without them expressing themselves just by observing. So that's three. And that's really important. I'm sure you can understand how that would be important for leaders, how we handle relationships. We have to see, hey, how you doing? Doesn't seem like you're having a great day today. Or do you just walk up to them like an ignorant leader? This is what ignorant leaders do. Stupid leaders, let's put it this way. Naive is probably a better word than stupid. 
But this a naive leader, I almost said stupid, a naive leader walks up to a person that's stressed out and gives them more work and says, you know, why don't you just get a tissue? A naive leader walks up to uh, a person that has like two kids under their supervision and says, you know, your dog's running around. Get your dog under control. Like they're just, they don't get it. You know what I mean? They're just not aware as to like what the heck is happening outside of their own world. So that's social awareness. And you can see how important that is with others. So how can we take self-awareness, self-management, social awareness? And then key in this for leaders is how then do we manage relationships with other people using positive emotions to enhance performance and manage difficult circumstances, using emotions to influence the social environment. And if you sense that somebody is not avoiding you, someone's avoiding you, someone's not calling you, someone's maybe standoffish with you. So you're self-aware, like, hey, I, I don't think it's me. I haven't been angry or upset or, you know, I, I feel like I, I have been able to control my emotions in the last week or so. And then also, I know I haven't lashed out at anyone. I've been able to manage my emotions. So that should be a given for any leader. And then, okay, now I'm socially aware. I see, I see Jerry over there. Jerry is, you know, he's not, he's avoiding me. He's not talking to me. So the next step would be, okay, let me manage that relationship. Let me go to Jerry and ask Jerry, hey, Jerry, you know, how you doing? Do you mind if we have a conversation? And then Jerry comes in the office and you're capable of managing that conversation well and asking Jerry, how he's doing. You're building that relational bond with Jerry because you've been able to be self-aware, self-managed, socially aware, and now here you are managing a relationship in a positive and productive way with Jerry. This is the key. That What I just mentioned there is the key to leadership and doing that well and not doing it once or twice or three times, but doing it all the time, being self-aware, self-managed, social aware. And we'll talk about some ways to improve upon that. But the, the reality is it's not about you. Leadership is not about you. Leadership is about understanding yourself enough so that you can understand and influence others. So again, it, of course, it's about you and it's about you becoming a better leader, but it's you becoming a better leader so that you can help others. It's about you becoming a better leader so that you can influence others. That That's really the goal is external, not internal when it comes to leadership. If you think about a person, remember we're talking about individual behavior. And really, we're talking about leadership. But the reality is, with leadership, we have to understand why people do what they do. We talked about that earlier. IQ, EQ, and personality. IQ and EQ, we talked about. IQ, fairly fixed, fairly stagnant. EQ can be practiced. It can You can get better at it. And you could actually implement tactics and skills and, and little things with behaviors in order to get better at it. We know that. We know we can grow there. We know it's sort of the X factor in leadership. Okay. So what happens, and we're, we're speaking specifically about other people's behavior. We're leaders. You own a pizza store, and there's a customer that's like acting out of sorts, inappropriately behaving. As an owner of the store, we have a choice to make. The choice is fairly simple. Do something about it or don't do something about it. And as leaders, we should never choose the latter. We should always do something about it. So here's the reasons why people say, so that's the, the customer example. And let me give you another example of, let's say a chef. So you're the owner of the pizza store. You're the, you're the boss and I am a chef that works for you. And I'm constantly putting on too many pepperonis on the pizza. Too much pepperoni. It's like obnoxious how much pepperoni, but I'm wasting money for the store and the customers are annoyed. So you're going to have to 
tell me, like, hey, listen, don't put on so much pepperoni on the pizza. Clearly, you're doing something wrong. So that's that's another example. And, and then the third example is now I'm a delivery driver. For whatever reason, the delivery driver is not getting to the customer on time. And super nice delivery drivers, so great. It's been working for you for a while. You're so happy with them, but they're just constantly late. So you have to obviously have to explain to them, hey, listen, you know, you're late. So here's a lot of times what doesn't happen is that some of the time leaders don't do anything. This is what makes them a bad leader. They hope it's going to self-correct. They hope that the obnoxious drunk customer in their pizza establishment eventually is going to be quiet and leave. Maybe, but what if they don't? So that's a problem. They think that pepperoni is just going to magically disappear off the pizza. And a bunch of other things are going to happen without them doing anything about it. Here's what's going on. If you remember that chart where it was unconsciously incompetent, if you don't know you're not good at math, eventually you need a teacher to tell you. So if the pizza delivery person doesn't know that it's not okay to be late to delivery, they could be operating in that conscious or unconscious incompetence. They have no idea. So hoping for self-correction doesn't work. That you feel comfortable enough saying, hey, listen, I don't understand. What are you talking about right now? say something. So I use that as an example of you can't hurt my feelings. And if you felt like you were going to hurt somebody else's feelings by telling them, listen, Lindsay, you got a piece of chocolate on your face. It looks like poop. You should probably remove it. You know, that's a problem. You're not being a good friend. You know, you got poop on your face. You, you should probably get rid of that before you go out dancing. So that is not an excuse either. You won't hurt anyone's feelings. You're the leader. You're in charge. It's your job. If somebody else did it, that's fine. Like they're, they're, taking ownership, then you better see that somebody else did it and thank them for it. You better be aware that this is happening. And at least if some of you know that somebody else did it, then they say thank you. But if you said, you know what, you suck and you don't know what you're doing, like that's not the right approach. That's going to create conflict. So when you talk to somebody, you really have to, you have to think about it. You don't dress them down and you certainly don't dress down employees either. You're respectful and kind and nice to them. Hey, they're my friend. I don't want to tell them what to do. That's not okay either. If other people aren't doing it, I'm not going to do it. That's not okay either. If you tell a person, listen, don't put the pepperoni in pizza, and they say, well, why? I say, well, because I said so. Like, that doesn't really work. You know, they tell me why. Well, you know, the pepperoni costs this much money, and, and when you put too much pepperoni on, the people that eat the pizza, they get indigestion, and then they call, they call our establishment, and that's not a good thing. So explaining to the person is a lot easier. Maybe they don't know how to talk to people well. That's also another reason why people don't address it in these situations. But the point is, when you see something, you have to say something. And as a leader, we have to get comfortable with, with correcting people. Are you aware of your emotional intelligence and your influence on other people? That's the question. Hopefully, you're going to be able to harness those skills so that you can speak up when it's time to speak up emotionally, intelligently. And also be quiet when it's time to listen. And you know that when you're doing it, you're not just doing it haphazardly, you're doing it intentionally. And that's gonna, that's gonna change you. I think it's gonna change. You're gonna start to feel comfortable with some of that. Traits, behaviors, and relationships. What are the traits that leaders have? What are the behaviors? And what are the relationships that they're fostering? Okay, so we're talking about traits, behaviors, and relationships. So we're gonna start with relationships. I'm gonna work our way back to behaviors and then traits. So why is it important for leaders to have good relationships with people in their in their office, the people that they lead? I mean, in order to build trust, you have to build a relationship. And in order to build a relationship, you have to build trust. It's sort of reciprocal. If I didn't have a relationship to you, it would have been harder to get something done. 
Meaning I would have had to like, it, first of all, we probably wouldn't have been able to do it because I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have known you well enough. I wouldn't have trusted you enough because we had a relationship, because we've successfully worked together in the past. I knew what to expect. You, you knew what to expect. We, we can facilitate. It's okay. So that's the power of having a relationship with somebody as a leader is saying, Hey, I trust. They trust. We know each other. We can move forward together. This is a big deal. The ability to proficiently manage relationships by building rapport and finding common ground. Relationship management is about making choices and acting with the goal of creating an honest, deep connection with others. Anyone can be, become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right reason, for the right purpose, and in the right way. That is not easy. The power to affect somebody or something to cause changes without directly forcing them to happen. Inspirational, the power to move another's intellect or emotion to prompt a high level of activity or emotion. Teamwork focused, effectively senses or reads the room, able to work with organizational hire and culture to lead or coordinate a group of persons acting together as a team or in the interest of a common cause. So this is characteristics of good relationship management, being a good communicator, influencer, inspirational, conflict manager. That's a big one. Extensive networker and teamwork focus. So I think about my family when I think about relationship management. If I haven't talked to my cousin in six months, for whatever reason, if he calls me, like, I don't really want to talk. I don't want to talk to him. I don't have the desire to manage that relationship. So if I think to myself, wow, if, if I want to be good at managing relationships, I better get comfortable with that. I better communicate effectively with the people I love and I better explain to them, Hey, listen, you know, it's been six months and I miss you. I wish you would talk more often, you know, sort of like, hinting at a little bit of conflict you know what i mean like it's okay it's not you don't have to shy away from the obvious like we know we haven't talked in a while and it's either your fault or my fault so let's come to terms with talking to each other more often and doing it in a emotionally intelligent way wow you know what a great way to be when you're trying to build relationships with people on your team or family members just being open and honest and, and doing all this kind of stuff you can see the power of relationships we look at our self-management and our social awareness and emotional intelligence. And you'll see how emotional intelligence ties into everything we talk about with leadership. So if you want to build relationships, obviously you have to have relationship management skills, which is emotional intelligence. Ask those you admire and trust for feedback about their perceptions of your interpersonal skills. Ooh, that's a tough one. Practice. Develop and grow several critical habits to enhance your relationship management. We're going to practice our humility, our awareness, our genuineness, our interpersonal skills, making sure we're priority focused, and professional organization. Those are ways to improve our relationships with others. What is social capital? The benefits that you gain from your connections with others. If your social capital is high, the people in your social network can offer benefits, such as providing support in difficult times, helping you stay relaxed, and assist you in achieving your goals. So this is a major, major benefit. It's, it's like an asset. It's a, it's a great thing that you have. And I encourage you to, to keep doing it and to do it intentionally. So before you can enjoy the benefits of a strong and long-lasting social network, social capital must first be developed through the four building blocks of high-quality relationships, namely the quantity, strength, intensity, and density of social connections. So this, you've probably already done this somewhat 
unconsciously because you're probably already at the stage where you're like unconsciously competent in a sense. Like you just do it all the time and you're good at it. But so let's become more conscious of it. So the quality, the strength, the intensity and the density of our relationships. Do I have too little enough or too many social relationships? How about strength? With whom do I feel the strongest connection? Do you have a couple of people that you just feel you, you would cry if their dog died or you hug them super tight? So you can see the difference in quantity and strength. How about intensity? Do, do I invest enough time in my relationships? Density. How strongly are the people in my social network connected to each other? It's a good one. It sometimes you have to be honest. Like in order to be, get better at your social capital and this kind of stuff, say, so you know what? I, I can improve there. This is not about, you know, oh, well, let me, let me flex and see how great I am. No, it's just the opposite. Let, let me see how much I have to improve and let me work on improving it. So this is, this is me at the middle. This is my wife. Then I have my father, my daughter, my son. So I got a daughter. Okay, this is great. Siblings. I got some siblings. All right. And then my extended family, my corporate network, my community network, my church network, my contractor network, the close relationships. It sounds like it looks like in red. You can see those are really important. So my relationship with my dad and my wife and my kids, that's really important, which I'm pretty good at. And the final analysis, am I aware of who I am? aware of my strengths or weaknesses, under control, aware of others, communicating well with others, influence and inspiring others, managing conflicts and nurturing relationships. Okay, traits, distinguishing personal characteristics of a leader, such as intelligence, honesty, self-confidence, and appearance. A leadership perspective that's sought to identify the inherited traits leaders possess that distinguishes them from people who are not leaders. Okay, tell me, what do you think is the number one most important trait for a leader to have? Personal characteristics, energy, passion, humility, a physical stamina, intelligence and ability, intelligence, cognitive ability, knowledge, judgment, decisiveness, personality, optimism, big optimism and cheerfulness are huge. So think about it this way. If you were in the military and you were following a leader who was about to go, like literally you had your gun on you and everything, and you're like about to go shoot at these enemies. And the leader said, okay, guys, you know, we're probably going to pop up out of this trench that we're in and we're going to start shooting, but we're very quickly going to get shot and we're likely not going to make it out of here. And there's a good chance that we're going to die. So, okay, ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Super pessimistic about our outcome here. So why would I follow you? So it's funny, but... This is the power of optimism. You want to follow a leader who is optimistic about the future. Like, yo, come on. I mean, I know this sucks right now and we're here and, you know, at least we're learning about personality traits for effective leaders. Like there's good things about what we're doing. Cheerfulness. This is a big one where I get on my wife all the time. I'm like, why aren't you just happier? You know, I know you're with the baby, but like, come on, like get happy. She wasn't very nice to me about it, but I'm very cheerful. She's not as energetic as me. So I look at her and I'm like, come on. Like I clap my hands. I'm like, let's go for a walk. And she's like, get away from me. <laughs> you know, like, the point is being cheerful is a personality trait that's good for leaders. Self-confidence is huge. If honesty and integrity, charisma, desire to lead, independence. Desire to lead is funny. Like how is that number whatever on the list? You feel like desire to lead would be number one, but people tend to emerge as leaders. That's what's so interesting is that People don't always choose to be leaders. They emerge as leaders because they're optimistic, cheerful, and self-confident. All of a sudden, next thing you know, they're like leading people. Like, oh, <laughs> you know, how did I get in this position? Social characteristics, sociability, cooperativeness, adaptability, work-related characteristics, drive, desire to excel, dependability, fair-minded, optimism, self-confidence, honesty. We already went over those. Integrity, drive, humility. Humility is a big one. This will be fun because it's so funny. And this is like this 
paradigm is so interesting. We're supposed to be confident and humble at the same time. I can do that. I know I can do that, but I'm not going to tell you I know I can do that and I can do that. I'm just going to do it confidently. So there's a big difference between confident and arrogant. So one of the things that I explain is confidence leads to something called self-efficacy. It's confidence in my ability to do something leads me to do something. And then the more I do it, the better aware I am that I can accomplish that task. So let's just talk about math for a second. If you took a math test and you, and you did well, and then you took another math test and did well, you took another math test and you did well, obviously you're going to be confident when you take math tests that you're going to do well and your self-efficacy and taking the test, like you're, once you sit down in the chair, you're like, I know I can get an A. You're self-efficacious in that task. So it's not about just being confident. It's about completing tasks and your ability to complete the task. You're confident in that. That's self-efficacy. Again, so let's look at a person that's arrogant. So a person that's arrogant says, yeah, of course I can you know, do a math test. And they do a math test and they do well. And that, then they're even more prideful about, oh, look at me. I can do math tests. Then they do a math test and they don't do well. And then all of a sudden they're like, you know what? I don't like math. I don't want to do math anymore. Because they, they were arrogant to begin with. They weren't humble enough to, you know, fit in their role. I'll give you one example of confident versus arrogant again. So if, if a confident person walks into Disney World and a dolphin trainer says to them, Hey, you know, I'd really like you to come help me train these dolphin. Have you ever trained dolphin before? And you look at the person and you're like, well, you know, no, I've never trained a dolphin before, but I can try if you teach me. That's a confident person. An arrogant person says, you know, yeah, you know, I love dolphin. Of course I can train dolphin. Yeah, yeah, bring me in. No problem. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, you're a little arrogant because you you don't know how to train dolphin and you've never done it before and you're probably not going to be coachable. So confident people aren't always, how do I say this? They're not, they're not always prideful about what they can do. It's actually the opposite. They're actually humble about what they can't do. That's what a confidence is. So that drive, humility, Natural talents or abilities that have been supported and refined with learned knowledge and skills. Those are strengths. Matching strengths with roles within the operational role, within a collaborative role, within an advisory role. So now we know, like, it was, it was thought that leaders have to be good at certain things in order to be effective leaders. That's sort of the case. But here's another approach at it. Behavior approach. Autocratic versus democratic. Autocratic is a centralized authority, meaning I'm in charge. I make the decisions. And if anything, if anything's going to happen around here, it has to go through me. That's an autocratic leader. A democratic leader delegates that. Democratic leader really trusts their subordinates, knows that they're competent and allows their subordinates to make decisions. And when there's big decisions to be made, they inquire with their subordinates and say, Hey, what do you guys think? Delegates authority, encourages participation, relies on subordinates' knowledge for completion of tasks, and depends on subordinates' respect for influence. So there's an autocratic leader, which is like command and control, and a democratic leader, which is more inclusive. Sometimes it's good to be an autocratic leader. Sometimes it's good to be a democratic leader. I work in a prison. I teach prisoners in prison. The prisoners have guards that are in charge of running the prison, and they have a warden that's sort of the head of the prison. They're a very autocratic system and it's meant to be autocratic and that's okay. It's, it's, it's a prison. So I understand that democratic would be more like Google or Zappos.com or Uber. You know, these are companies that are, are more dynamic, a little bit more democratic. But the point is you need to do well. So now you have a team of say five people that you're going to lead. 
to help you achieve the goals you need on this project. Five people. There's going to be clear parameters to this project. It's going to be a scope of work. It's going to be deadlines and everybody's going to have to work. Everybody's going to have to do something in order for this project to be turned in on time and be good. So here are your two options. As a leader, this is what you're going to default to being more of. One is you're going to be high. You could be high on consideration. Consideration. Remember the five people on the team. The extent to which you, the leader, is sensitive to subordinates, respects their ideas and feelings, and establishes mutual trust. Remember, this is your project, not theirs. They're on your team. They're meant to help you achieve your goals. Are you going to be respectful of their ideas and their feelings? And well, what if they say, well, you know what? I don't, I don't think we should do it that way. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> I'm the leader. So uh, you have to do what I say. So consideration is one part of it. The other part of it is initiating structure. So you're either going to be higher on consideration or you're going to be higher on initiating structure. Initiating structure is the extent to which a leader is task oriented and directs subordinates work activities towards goal achievement. So you can see what this is like. Okay, guys, you know, on Tuesday, we're going to meet on Thursday. We're going to meet and you need to do this and you need to do this and we need this by this time. And, you know, that's structure positional structure and roles. So, hey guys, this is a project. I'll give you the general overview. You know, this is my role. This is Jerry over here. This is his role. And this is sort of what it, what it looks like. And what if Jerry comes and says, hey, you know, it's, I understand you want me to turn it in with a three-page, you know, essay, but I, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable with that. I'm going to turn it in in a two-page essay. I, he says, I think I can get just as much done two pages, uh, you know, instead of three. Would you be okay with that? He's got an idea. He has a feeling. He's an autonomous individual, a person that deserves their own respect and dignity. But you're saying, hey, you know what? Mm, that doesn't work for me. I mean, that's not obviously a bad thing and that's okay. But those are the kinds of things that are going to happen, that the people that work for you, your subordinates are going to have their way of doing it. And you're going to have to say, okay, well, you're going to have to do it my way, either that or you say, okay, let me see your way. Oh, your way works great. Will that make you happy? Yeah, that makes, okay, go ahead, do it your way. That's more consideration, which is hard because, first of all, I want to say that a balance of both is usually best. What's happening more is that people, when they come to work, one of the most important things that they want is not influence, and a lot of times it's not money. It's autonomy. It's the ability to do what they want when they want to. They want to be able to come in. They want to have freedom in their work. They want to feel encouraged to do it because they want to do it, not because you told them to do it. So it's tending to lean a little bit more towards consideration, but structure is still very important, very important. So just it's very similar, like concern for results and concern for people. Okay. So the more concern we have for people, if we're like a nine, we're high on that is country club management, thoughtful attention to the needs of people for satisfying relationships leads to a comfortable, friendly organization, atmosphere, and work tempo. But it means we're not very concerned for results, so that's not a good thing because we're just sort of a country club. The opposite is impoverished management is you have a one-on-one, you have exertion on minimum effort to get required work done is appropriate to sustain organizational membership. So there's really no high concern for people and there's no high concern for results. This is a very high concern for results. Low concern for people is authority compliance management. Efficiency in operations results from arranging conditions of work in such a way that human elements interfere to a minimum degree. Like we don't care about the human elements. We just care about getting stuff done. 
That's authority compliance management versus the opposite is country club management. Where we want to be is we want to be team management. We want to work in a nine-nine. We want to be high on concern for people. And we want to be high on concern for results. Work accomplishment is from committed people. Interdependence through a common stake in organization purpose leads to relationships of trust and respect. That's where we want to be. To flex the muscle. Like, okay, we know it. No, let's put it into practice. So let's look at this from a... Uh, an actual perspective of leading within an organization. If we are trying to influence people to change their behavior and come follow us, certain things we have to know for sure. And one of them is what are our values? My values are faith, family, leadership, and strength. And to be able to convey that clearly to others is important. And then my values are one thing, but do my behaviors correspond with my values? And then of course, as an organization, what do we care about the most? And then are the people in our organization actually walking out those values? Like if we had a value that was completely dependable, that was something that we valued in people, that they did what they say they were going to do. So if that's a value, then the question is, are people picking up their phone? Are people responding to emails? Are people serving customers? Are we dependable? That equals our cultures. So we're just going to run through some of this stuff to give you a taste of what we're going to be talking about. So what are your values? What are your organization's values? Do you live those values out every day? So the elements of a positive organizational culture, and this is really what leaders are meant to create. They have, if you think about the, the team that that coach led, the good coach and the types of the behaviors that emerged from that team. So here are some elements of what a good, effective leader puts into an organizational culture, inoculating the traits of morality and ethics. If I'm bringing you into an organization and I am a liar, that's a problem. If I'm bringing you into an organization, I'm the leader of that organization. And after about a week, I get caught stealing from a bank and I'm on the news stealing from the bank. My entire organization that I led is completely jeopardized. So this is what it means to inoculate the traits of morality and ethics. We have to have a values-based organization more than anything else. And that is really the duty of the leader. Moving on to the next one, purpose and mission. So if you're going to work for a company and you're going to follow a leader, you want to make sure that this leader is tying in some level of purpose to what you're doing every day. Because work can be difficult. And to have purpose means you have some sort of emotional tie or a deeper reason beyond money to actually be somewhere. And then the mission is really what exactly are you doing while you're at work? Like our mission at our company was to serve customers. So everything we did was really focused on serving customers. And it doesn't sound, it sounds very vague, but we were on a mission to serve customers in the pool and landscape industry. And we did that with our full hearts. So it was a little bit more elaborate. And good leadership creates organizational culture, effective communication. Communication is huge. Acting like an owner, getting the people on your team to act like they're owning whatever it is that you're trying to do is really important. Building a community of people. You know, we, we would have people come into work and I would sit on this loading dock that we had. It was early in the morning. It was maybe 7.30 in the morning. And sometimes I would just watch the interactions amongst our staff members. And you could tell that regardless of my presence, that the people at this organization cared about each other. They'd say hello to each other. They would ask about each other's days. So building a community of people that are interconnected beyond the mission is really important too. Equal rights and opportunities. This is more inclusivity, making sure that people feel as if if they work hard, they have the traits, they have the skills, 
that they can move up in the organization. This is another thing that leaders can manifest, that leaders can create within a company. Management of resources. The reality is every company has resources, like money, equipment, cars, people. Being able to put those things to use for the mission is really important. Clean organizational structure just means simplicity. It's straightforward. It's clean. People understand it. Like the structure is the way in which the company operates. So it's the way that job designs and chain of command works. Military is very structured. It has you walk in as an enlisted person. Then after enlisted, you spend a year, you become a sergeant. After a sergeant, you become a major. After a major, you become a captain. It's very clear clean organizational structure. And that's what leaders can create. Formation of pleasant and cordial workplace. If you think about walking into a company where the leader sucks, the leader's a tyrant, you know, people just aren't pleasant. They just don't, they feel like they're on the defensive and they don't really want to be there. And leaders can create that type of environment. Bad leaders can create that type of environment. We're going to bring up a lot of examples of terrible leadership. We'll talk about like, why is that terrible leadership? Hopefully we'll laugh about, you know, what we wouldn't do if we were in that position. But the reality is it exists. It's so crazy how you and I can sit on the outside and look at terrible leadership. But the question is, why can't they see it's terrible leadership? And also, how do they have influence over these people? Why are they still in a leadership position? So here are some other things that builds organizational culture, stories, rituals, symbols, cultural systems, and power structures. Oftentimes, leaders and managers get misconstrued, meaning they're sort of bundled together there's a lot of talk about the difference between leadership and management. Uh, first of all, every manager has to be a leader at times. But there's a difference between leadership and management. A leader sets the vision. A leader is like the rocket on a ship. So if you think about the power that comes from this rocket and the thrust that it provides and the the sophistication of it, like this rocket is capable of bringing this ship to wherever it needs to go. But the rocket alone can't get it there. The rocket needs to be backed up by structure. The rocket needs to be backed up by a certain amount of fuel. It needs to be backed up by engineering. It needs to be backed up by a, a space shuttle that's attached to it. It needs to have experienced pilots that pilot it. So the rocket, the booster knows where it wants to go. The booster has a focus on goals. They sell it. They take risks. They encourage others to come along with them. They go against the grain. They motivate. They inspire trust and they foster ideas. That's a leader. Casting the vision, providing the, the rocket fuel and the thrust to get the company or the people to where they want to go. Powerful. You've probably experienced that. You've probably been a part of somebody giving you rocket fuel, like motivating you. Okay, let's go to encourage you to step into leadership roles. If I explain to somebody, who I really was vocationally. I really believe that I'm a servant leader. I think that leadership is a trait of mine that I enjoy. And one of the reasons why is you can tell, like I'm passionate. I want people to launch into whatever they're doing. But let me see if I can give you a different analogy. If you think about a, a ship that's going on a destination, you have a captain of the ship that says, hey, come aboard and we're going to take this voyage and we're going to go to this place. It's a faraway place. And we're going to adventure out into the ocean and here's my ship and here's where we're going to go. Specifically, this particular longitude, latitude in the ocean. Do you want to come with me? And I get a whole crew of people to come with me. The reality is all I'm doing is steering the ship, but I'm delegating a lot of my roles to someone called a first mate. And the first mate really runs the ship. They're the one that makes sure they have a focus on tasks. 
They tell it. They tell people what to do. They minimize risk. They go with the flow. They approve certain things. Hey, the captain doesn't like that. The captain likes that. Make sure things are, are set over here. Make sure we have enough sail in order to get to that destination. Expect control and they assign tasks. So the manager is responsible for ensuring the leader's vision comes to fruition. They do this by planning, organizing, leading, and controlling. So that's the difference between leadership and management. The leader is responsible for casting a vision of a better future. We're fuel behind the rocket, the captain behind the ship, strategizing on the organization's direction and motivating their teams to achieve the company's overarching objective. Management is doing things right. Leadership is doing the right things. Yeah, so they sort of go hand in hand. It's hard to separate leadership and management completely. Leadership first, then management. And the combination of the two together is a, is a potent combination. And this leadership is not done once. Leadership is done continuously. Not only demonstrate, okay, this is leadership, this is management, or okay, this is leadership, and then how would you do it? And let's look at the context. Let's look at the situation. You think about if you're leading troops into Gaza from Israel and you're leading that unit, you're probably going to lead a little bit differently than if you're leading a church in your hometown or if you're leading a university or if you're leading a football team or or whatever. It's, It's a different kind of leader, and it's a different kind of leadership. But leaders at any level in the organization should be focusing on two main aspects of interaction with those employees whom they supervise, providing clear direction to employees on the what, the why, the how, and resources aspects, and development of the employees' skill sets, both technical and non-technical. One of the reasons why I believe that I identify more as a leader is because I genuinely want to develop other people. And that's one of my biggest desires, you know, essentially just besides survival, my own survival. I want to make sure that other people have everything they need in order to take their career or take their business or take their organization to the next level. And development is a big part of leadership. And your desire to develop others is really important. So that's what leaders focus on. The what, the why, the how, and the resources. Did he give you the what? Did you Were you clearly aware of like what it was that you needed to do? Okay. Did he give you the why, like the purpose behind it? Like, but no, you need to do it. And when you do it, the reason why we're doing it is because we're going to kick this other team's butt. And then, and then did he give you a good how? Like, did he explain to you, okay, we're going to break it up. We're going to do, you know, however many 500 meters and we're going to do it over the next like six hours. Like, did he explain how you were going to break up those 600? He was capable of giving you the what. He was capable of giving you the why. And then he kind of explained how. And obviously the how is very technical. You got to provide the what, you got to provide the why, the how, and the resources. And just like good coaching, that's what good leaders do as well. Driving for results is great if you know that those four things are going to be present. So some of my favorites is I really love, obviously, I told you developing others, uh, building relationships. I think that's important. And then communicates powerfully and prolifically. So leaders provide purpose, direction, and motivation. Why do people do the things they do? This is a huge question. Leaders have to understand the answer to that question. What is true motivating leadership? How can we motivate people, not just by carrying on our days, however we will carry on our days. If I continue to sit down as I'm going over this content, I wouldn't have been more motivated. So I'm self-aware that standing up and using my hand gestures in order to communicate makes me more motivating. So that's like, it's a tactic. It's not a, it doesn't come naturally. It's something that you develop over time is learning how to motivate people. What can I do better 
to motivate other people, getting people to do what you want them to do or getting people to want what you want. That's the big deal. Like I want you to want to be a better leader. I don't want you to be a better leader because if that's what I want, I want you to feel that internally, intrinsically, like, wow, I see the power and the impact that makes me want to be a leader amongst my friends. That's my goal. So who is responsible for behavior? The leader is. And the leader truly sets the tone for behavior with other people. And when we talk about individual behaviors and we start talking about people and why they do what they do, it's going to get very complicated. It'll get complicated because really a lot of the times people do some crazy stuff and we can't change that. All we can do is work with that. Meaning if we have a group of people on a team and if we were effective in our own leadership skills or say confident in our own leadership skills, we would have been able to maybe stand up to her and say, hey, listen, um, I appreciate where you're coming from and everything you're doing, but, you know, maybe we should take a vote or, you know, how about we, we look at these other perspectives or kindly sort of not allowing the tyrant to be a tyrant by purposefully using our own behaviors in order to impact them. So that's, I know it kind of gets convoluted when you think about it, but if she wasn't a tyrant to begin with, meaning if she wasn't acting crazy, then we could have just not done anything like her bad behavior actually influenced us to be better leaders. We'll unpack that a little bit more, but maybe you understand what I'm trying to say. So being able to motivate others is not something that happens once. It happens all the time. So here's where we want to get to eventually. When we're leading people, we don't want them to wait until they're told what to do at all. We also don't really want them to ask us, okay, what should, what should we do? You know, should we start now? Should we start in 10 minutes? Whatever that looks like. We want them to make recommendations, take the initiative and do it themselves. And by the time they get there, all they're asking us is, hey, coach, how you doing? You know, nice to see you, coach. Nice to see you too. Let's get started. You know what I mean? Like not this whole confusion. We really want people to start doing it right away. And that has a lot to do with your influence. Like, how are you influencing other people? Can you give me some feedback? That's good influence. Really, in the beginning of our leadership career, we're, we're down at the bottom. And eventually, as we build people up and we coach them up and we influence them and we show them how to do things and we provide them boundaries and maybe we, we influence them by consequences, we tell them, hey, you can't do that. And you, you got to do it like this. And eventually, they get to the point where they just do it. And when you sit back and watch people as a leader, just do it. It's just an incredible feeling. And it, it's the epitome of influence.